Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa automotive battery and save $25. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831.20. It's that little Chico Pit Boomer, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. You already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken, and you know, that's fire. Now, Babu, you know that you could get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits, now that's that's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on negative to positive, we always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from negative to positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. I just think food is just, meals are just a vehicle to get to the dessert part. Hello, everyone. It is time for another episode of Collider Ladies Night. And this time around, we have one of the stars of the boys with us. It's Erin Moriarty. How are you doing during all this? I am okay. I am not the most even-keeled person. It's probably why... I became an actor. <laughs> and so some days are good and some days aren't. And it's a little bit of a roller coaster. So I'll say that it's definitely been an interesting time. But ultimately, I don't have complaints because so far, knock on wood, I've stayed um, COVID free, as has my family. And that is what's most important right now. Could not agree more. I'm happy to hear that. Just because I think someone out there might need to hear this, when you're having a not so good day, what do you turn to to kind of snap yourself out of it? You know what? What I find to be the best, and you can do this whether you have a dog or not, um, because I used to do this without a dog. I got a dog about um, a year and a half ago. Um, I now leave my phone at home because my phone gives me a lot of anxiety. It always has, but especially now, because it feels like there's an incessant negative reel of news at the moment. So I leave my phone at home and I just go for a walk outside. Um, And even whether it's 10 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour, usually I find I go longer than I intend to. It ends up 
making a profound difference in terms of just taking a step back and gaining a bit of clarity. So now I'll do that with my dog. I used to live by the beach in Los Angeles and I would walk to the beach. And then I will say that actually, you know, and I think this is, this is a bit of a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. I do do transcendental meditation and um, that has had a profound impact on my anxiety, whether we're in COVID or not, but it certainly peaks during this and, yeah, I would say it's that and just a really conscious um, separation from my phone and using it only when I need to and not arbitrarily. I I can definitely understand the dog thing. I think mm-hmm. I have to learn a bit more about meditation. Now might be the right time for me actually to dive into the 101 and actually be able to use that. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I started is because, like I said, I've I've suffered from anxiety for a while and I had too many friends who swore by it. So I said to my, I was working on a job and um, had to wake up really early for it most days. But I said to myself, you know what? I know that even though I have to wake up early, even though I'm tired, there's a level of mental clarity that is within reach that I don't have yet. And so I just downloaded an app. I think it was Calm. And I was like, you don't have, I, I didn't have an excuse because you can literally choose two minutes. That's it. And I knew that it was going to be a game changer for me because I would do two minutes in the morning and it would already make a difference. So that's when I graduated to doing the transcendental meditation course. And you kind of, fit, I, I think, I don't think one modality fits all, but I think there are really accessible ones for like two minutes. And even that can kind of, just the process of taking a breath and staying still for a second can make a really big impact. I'm not, I'm not good at it, but between seeing mm. the calm commercials on TV all the time and yeah. now hearing you name drop it, yeah. maybe that is what I'll do after this is at least down. Yeah. I'll try. Just try it like two minutes out of your day, you know, I'll never say no to trying something unless it's yeah. like really weird food. I'm not good at that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. So going back, not even just to the beginning of your career, but I guess some of your earliest inspirations when you were super, super young, what were you watching film wise and TV wise? And do you find that those early things you were watching have influenced the roles that you tend to gravitate towards now? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think they, I think it's, you know, my um, childhood and what I was exposed to in terms of movies and TV has made a massive impact on the roles I gravitate towards, but primarily the projects that I gravitate towards as a whole. Um, I, my dad is a massive cinephile and he was a single dad half the time because my parents split up when I was really young. And, um, I think he wasn't quite sure how to, you know, be a single dad with a little girl and his way of connecting to me and hanging out with me and figuring out a mutual activity that we could both enjoy and that would, you know, make a positive impact on me if good choices were made in terms of which movies he chose. We would watch tons of movies together, tons of TV. I would say that a lot of it was perhaps more mature than people would, would, you know, deem appropriate for that age but I think he also because he's such a cinephile he's got a high bar and I think you know the Pixar films of the world which we loved growing up that was his version of 
childhood movies that he could tolerate because they're so good. They're basically for adults. But otherwise, we watch really mature things. Like, I remember him telling me that when I was a toddler, we would have The Shining on and he would turn, switch it off when my mom would come home. And we would watch, you know, a lot of them were indies. They weren't wildly violent. They were just mature. And a lot of them had really strong female characters as the leads. Like, the other... um uh, animated films we would watch would be the Studio Ghibli films like Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, which I loved. And my dad just thought they were a bit more nuanced than your traditional kids movie. But, you know, they're pretty dark, especially Princess Mononoke. And they have these, the lead characters are these female characters who exist within these dark worlds and take on these adversities really well. So I would say that I definitely, when I got a little bit older, um, preferred to play roles that depicted women in a bit of a, a stronger and less um, a stronger light and a bit more of a dominant light because I know it did make a subliminal, well, conscious and unconscious impact on me. Um, but I would say that for me, because I just adored movies and still do to this day and, and um, ones that are really well made, I would say it's made more of an impact on the way I will gravitate towards projects as a whole. If the project and script is really good, I'm in. Like, I don't care if it's a character that's on the periphery. I don't care if the character is maybe, um, serves a greater purpose, but she herself might have attributes that I don't admire, but it's for a reason. It's to make a commentary or perhaps she rectifies that. Like, for me, if it's, in a movie that has a great director, the intention of the storyline and, and her character is one that is good and stands up for what I believe in, particularly with women. But for me, if the script is good, I want to be involved no matter what. It doesn't matter whether it's the lead or, or the, on the periphery. Um, but yeah, I mean, it made a massive impact on me to this day. Just to briefly go back to animation, because you focused on that so much, is, is that of interest to you? I mean, would you, I don't know, seek out a, yeah. a voice acting role soon? Yeah, I mean, I would love to. I think it would be really fun. I've never done it. And I think that to totally rely on my voice alone to emote the sentiment of lines instead of being able to use my face and body language, I think it would be challenging, but really fun challenging. And especially if it were something like one of the animated films I've mentioned that is for kids, but it's a little bit more nuanced and clever and adults can watch along as well and get something out of it. Yeah, for sure. I'm mighty obsessed with Inside Out for that reason. I just was not Love. ready for how much that taught me about processing emotions. Oh my God. I went to go see it alone at the movie theater because I love going to the movies alone. And I cried. And this was like when it came out. So I was a full adult, but it is such a good film. And I was so appreciate they're making movies like that where parents can go with their little kids and everyone can enjoy it you know they're so clever I love that film Pixar is pretty good in that department so good so one of the best going from watching films with your dad to actually coming to the realization that acting needs to be your career what was that decision making process like especially I'm not sure if you had anyone in your life who had any know-how as far as the way Hollywood works but that is that's a big leap to make it is yeah my family um my dad is a blues musician so he's very um and he also paints he's very artistic but um those were not his 
day jobs ever. And my mom works in interior design and she deals with the financial side. So my family and then everyone else is predominantly doctors. They're not, there's really no one that was involved in the entertainment industry. I think it was really my dad though, because he's a blues musician and because it was such a huge passion in his life. I, from a very young age, became quite musical and I, my, the first manifestation of um, performance uh, that came up within me, the desire to perform was singing actually. And I loved it. And then that kind of merged with musical theater because I just thought it was, I would go see these plays in New York city or these musicals, especially the more contemporary ones. And I would have so much fun. So I just wanted to be a part of that. Um, so from a really young age, I started to go to musical theater camp and I started to do community theater in New York City. And that was like my pseudo entry into the industry because my parents were pretty intent on me, you know, staying focused on my academics, at least until I graduated high school. Because I think, you know, at the time I resented it, but I think in retrospect, it was the right decision because you don't really know when someone's really, really young, I don't think it's possible for their brains to be mature enough yet to make a decision that's going to impact the rest of their lives, maybe in some ways. But I knew, I know that they kind of thought, well, if this is a phase, she's going to miss months and months of school to film things or to do plays. And then she's going to turn around and not have a high school diploma. And it could be a problem. It could be challenging. So I did community theater, which allowed me to rehearse and then at night and kind of understand what a commitment it was and what it was like to perform on stage without having to drop out of school. And then I just kind of, I wasn't a triple threat. I just wasn't good at dancing. And it, and I still to this day really love some musical theater and I love theater, but musical theater itself, I think lost its appeal for me and film just became this thing. I was obsessed with movies. I just wanted to be in them. And then I got an agent who was a commercial agent thinking that, you know, I was 15 thinking that I would only miss a couple of days here and there to maybe film commercials miss a couple of days of school. But then I ended up booking some jobs through him and ultimately had to homeschool for my last year of high school. But luckily it was later on in life that I really was fully committed to it. And it didn't make, um, you know, I stayed on, on sort of on track in terms of work and I stayed committed to the whole actress thing and it didn't make any type of negative impact on my, you know, school, formal education. Going back to the the triple threat thing, I always think it's it's good for folks out there to hear about bumps in the road. So I am curious, were you ever in that situation where, I don't know, you were auditioning for a show when you were young and you were great at, at you know, the singing and, and the acting, but then like the dance, yeah. like you actually knew that the dancing is what held you back? Totally. I mean, even when I would go to musical uh, theater camp, which was my favorite thing in the world, it was my favorite two months out of the whole year. Um, when I got a little bit older in my final few years of high school, there's a repertory theater company you can audition to get into. And it's the people at the camp who are, you know, the most advanced and they're singing, they're acting, and they're dancing. Um, but the audition only entails singing. So I got into it and I made um, best friends that have remained my best friends to this day, one of whom specifically was brilliant at dancing. She kind of 
you know, until then she really committed to the musical theater thing. She continued to actually, she still works in it to this day. But what, she, what I observed in her was that, you know, dancing, I respect dancers so much. It's really challenging. And it's kind of like other things like languages and sports. Dancing is best learned from a young age when it, and then it becomes really embedded into your brain and the rhythm and, and you develop a dancer's um, way of moving. And I just didn't have it. But, you know, it was also the lack of commitment. I always was, I thrived in things that I was interested in and, and not in things that I was uninterested in, which is like most other people. I loved to sing. I loved to act. Um, but dancing just, unless it's freestyle dancing, like with fun music and friends, which I adore, I just was not into formal choreography. I found it kind of uh, regimented and boring, which is ironic because I love watching it. So I was like, well, you know, I guess I have to do screen acting because I'm just not willing to commit to this dancing thing. And of course, I'm glad now. And actually, in season two of The Boys, it was the first time I ever got to sing on screen. I get to sing in it. So finally, my favorite two interests merged, and it was really fun. So I hope they they do more. But yeah, it really was a lack of interest and commitment to musical theater dancing but dancing in general that was anything but just freestyle intuitive I hear that and I feel like going Mm -hmm. through things like that helps you kind of you know focus in on what you're like deeply passionate about especially when a career like this really consumes like your entire life and takes so much from you yeah that's the good thing about this career is I do think because it's quite testing and difficult if you're not really interested in what you're doing and what you want to do, if you're not really interested in acting or singing uh, or, you know, dancing, eventually, um, eventually, you know, those type of the people who are sort of maybe in it for the wrong reasons and aren't truly passionate about those things, they get strained out of the industry. And so very early on, I just knew that I wouldn't be happy if I, pursued a musical theater career entirely because that third facet of the triple threat concept didn't work for me. And um, yeah, I think you just, you have to figure it out on your own. And we're seeing that more and more, especially with female actresses who not only are they deciding what they want to do, but they're deciding on their own niche within the industry, like the Lena Dunham's and Issa Rae and, and, Phoebe Waller-Bridges of the world who are writing their own projects because they're so specific about what they want. And I think that's when you get the best work out of people. With that mentality, when you were first starting to book roles, did you ever find yourself in a push-pull kind of situation with wanting to take the opportunities that come your way because it's an opportunity and you need them versus you know trying to pick and choose the things that would carve out the career path that felt right to you? You know, the lucky thing for me specifically was that in the beginning, I was so keen to just book jobs. And it's really hard in the beginning, you know, and it's kind of a catch-22 as well, because you're desperate to get into the union so you can work. But in order to get into the union, you need to work. So I would say like my first few years, any job that came that way, I was ecstatic to accept. And I was not specific about what I wanted to do. I just wanted to work. I just wanted to gain experience. That was it. 
And luckily, any specificity in terms of my objectives in, um, you know, maybe maybe shaping my choices in career a little bit more, always correlated with working more and being able to be a bit more specific and being able to pass on certain things that compromised sort of the type of roles I wanted to play, but also just weren't my taste. Um, because, and then that actually becomes harder than, um, for me, it became harder than, um, than, than not passing because you're so conditioned as an actor to say yes to everything that comes your way that sometimes it can be really difficult to start to say no. So that for me, and, and to have confidence in the fact that if you say no to this, better things will come along. So I would say that to me was the challenge in initially starting to pass on things. But very beginning, it was not something that I set out to do in terms of this is the type of career I want. It was like, if I can even get a guest spot on SVU, I will be satisfied in this endeavor to act. And then it just kind of rolled on from there. I do feel like booking something on SVU or like CSI is almost like a rite of passage. Totally. If you're growing up in New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Well, when I was growing up in New York City, there are only two things really filming there consistently. And that was the soap opera One Life to Live and Law and Order SVU. And I did both of them. And that's when I was like, okay, I think it's time to go to LA because you can audition from New York, but I was young. I wanted to establish relationships with casting directors, meet them in person. And I was flying out to LA for callbacks and auditions every couple of weeks. It was a little depleting, so I just moved out. But it's different now. The tax incentives have changed in New York. They're filming things out there, you know. Um, but it was good. It was a good opportunity to fly the coop, which I think is good for everyone who wants to kind of establish their own uh, independent identity outside of their family and the influences of their home and so, yeah, it was good. I learned that exact lesson four years ago, making the move from New York to L.A. And Did you? It was a smart, necessary move to make. Yeah, and you're from New York City? Uh, from Long Island. From Long Island, okay, yeah. That's a lot of time in Manhattan. Okay, cool. Yeah, I went to theater camp in Long Island. A lot of my friends are from there, and... Um, yeah, I mean, East Coast is great. Yeah, I am mighty attached to this area, but I do love LA living. So, yeah, you're talking about, you know, early, early gigs and not necessarily being able to choose, but you did get mighty fortunate with one of your first features, which is, you know, probably one of my favorite movies of, I don't know, like, I guess the last decade. It's Kings <laughs> of Summer. It's that one is really something Aww. else. And that was the first time that I saw you on screen where I'm like, okay, like that name goes on my list. And whenever <laughs> I onto something, I am going to pursue it. So could you feel that shift yourself after Kings of Summer came out where more opportunities started to come your way? For sure. That, I think that movie was when the shift happened and that movie was probably the catalyst for me in terms of gaining a confidence. Prior to that movie, it was just a matter of getting jobs. And it was just a matter of working. And then that movie happened. And then that's when it kind of shifted into being a, a career for me mentally in my mind. And 
in terms of my confidence in the fact that maybe I would have a place in the entertainment industry. Not to say there weren't more, many more struggles to come and there, there will continue to be, but that movie was the biggest shift for me. And it was just so, it was one of the most special experiences of my life because it's very rare that you're a part of a project where you're really young, you're really, really at the beginning. Everyone else is too, including the director. You know, it was his first feature. It was, everyone was a relative novice and it was a real passion project. And we would shoot all week and then we would work on the weekends and we would just do um, B-roll abstract shots if we just had a day off and the director would message me and be like, let's just go shoot shots in a field. Maybe they'll end up in the movie, maybe they won't. And it was just fun. And we were all really there for it and really hungry to make it the best version that it could be. And um, then I just kind of let it go. I had no idea what to expect. And when it got into Sundance and when people responded well to it and I went to the film festival... That was the first time I really had um, a, 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 a sort of an extreme gratification for a project I had done. And it, the gratification wasn't so satisfying because of the superficial components, like going to the festival and having people go up to you and compliment you or meeting certain people. It was because I loved these people. We'd worked so hard on it. And... Um, that's, you know, to, to be recognized at a film festival like that and to have people see it finally when, you know, usually when you first start out a majority of your projects, it's just a lot of them won't be seen or as much as you want them to. It was just very surreal. And um, it definitely, it I, that was the shift I also um made in terms of finally feeling okay to pass on certain things. But I mean, I won't glorify it. I worked on that movie and it felt like everything was going to change. And it was one of the best experiences in my life. And it's just a testament to the fact that you never know what's going to happen because I then got more selective in projects that I was choosing. And so it was Kings of Summer euphoria and a burst in interest. And then I didn't work for like a year or a year and a half. And that actually served as a more valuable lesson, I think, it, than if I had, if it had, you know, kicked me off into a working spree because I thought in that moment when we were at Sundance and doing well, I, I thought, okay, from here on out, it's going to be smooth sailing. And I thought I've made it to the point where I'll at least be able to rely on the prospect of just consistently working and I learned the hard way that you can, it was very humbling. You can never trust that. Part of it was because I became more selective, but part of it is, you know, it's, it's an industry where, um, you know, you can audition and audition and audition and they're just projects and roles you're not meant to be in. It's very specific. It can entail so many deciding factors that are out of your hands. So it was, it was a very typical couple of years um, and, and um, educational couple of years in terms of having that euphoric relative success with the movie and then not working. But unfortunately, it's very typical. And I'm all the more grateful for when I do have periods of consistent work. So you have that period of not working as much as you would like to. Is there any particular project that kind of 
pulled you out of it and, and, you know, reinvigorated that, that feeling of having momentum again? I then, after having a tough period, booked the lead in a movie and no one really ended up seeing it, but it was the first time I was ever a lead. It was, um, I worked every single day. I had to, and I was really terrified. Well, I'd worked every single day before on projects, but I worked so extensively 18 hours a day for weeks on end exhaustively. And I was nervous because I had never led a film before and I didn't know if I could. And then I went through the experience and even though it ultimately went pretty much unseen, it then gave me the confidence to believe maybe I could lead a film. And right afterwards, or while I was filming that, I booked the lead opposite Mel Gibson in a film called Bloodfather. And I think that Bloodfather wouldn't have happened had I not had the prior experience to revamp my own confidence that had been really shot by a year of not working, just to a reasonable degree. You know, I still to this day, you know, have a fear that's common amongst actors, which is that it's all a fluke, I'll never work again. But it just let me know if I really worked hard on it, I could lead a film. And then I went in and, and booked the Mel Gibson movie. And then um, more shifts started to happen. And then more dry spells happened. And it just led me to a point of just knowing that um, you've kind of got to stay present with your projects and just enjoy the work because you never know when you're going to go through a dry spell, no matter how well you're doing. I know people who are extremely successful that will go through them. They'll win, you know, an Emmy one day and then the next day the dry spell begins. So it just conditions you to be a bit more present and grateful and not take things for granted. Comes with the territory too when you're when your job isn't just a job, but it's a deep passion and you could feel that ache to do it when you don't yes. have it. And I like feeling the ache and sometimes like even now there's an inherent um, period of, uh, of a, you know, a dry spell because of COVID. You know, you can't film many things at all during COVID. And I know that it just makes me hungrier and more excited whenever, I'm, whenever I next step on set. Before we jump into the boys here, you've worked with so many incredible, very experienced actors over the course of your career. You're just talking about leading your first film. Who would you say is the actor that taught you the most about being number one on the call sheet? Not just in terms of, you know, doing the role and playing it well, but also how you can kind of set the tone on set by being the lead in a film. Mm, I would say it would be a tie. I would say it's because they both were so good at that. Viggo Mortensen on Captain Fantastic and Mel Gibson on Bloodfather. I would say just because... Honestly, for me, um, you know, you had these two Olympian actors and what it really was about, they were such kind people and they were kind to everyone and they were not, um, it didn't matter who they were speaking to. Um, and they also busted, you know, their own butts for those projects. And it, you know, what I've seen in people who are that experienced is that they're usually ultimately besides all of their, you know, their talent, their commitment to the job, their fame, people at that level are often really good people. They, you know, we all have our own isms and things going on, but 
to me, observing, you know, Vigo Mortensen and how engaged he was with everyone, including myself. And I was on the periphery in that film, but I did Sundance with Vigo and he would always go out of his way to be kind. He worked so hard at that role, as did Mel Gibson with Bloodfather. And it's just this palpable, contagious feeling that they're just happy to be where they are and they therefore commit to it. They have really strong work ethics, but that they're nice to everyone around them um, and that they don't have overwhelming egos. In fact, they're really humble people. And that really made an impact on me and has kind of put me in the position of having that be one of my most valued and strived for qualities, but also having no patience for anyone who isn't anything but kind in that position because it's such a position of privilege and you are setting the tone and sets are really intense places and everyone wants it to be enjoyable. And so if you're setting the tone, you just need to stay humble and be kind to every single person on that set. Yeah, I... I couldn't agree more. We need more of that, especially in high pressure totally. situations like making uh, making movies and making really just like big, bold shows like The Boys. Yeah. I just, you know, I love season one and I didn't really understand how it was going to be possible to raise the bar and raise the stakes and make me feel the threat more, but you guys do it. First question I have for you about season two is you've got a team of really phenomenal writers and directors on season one, but I did happen to notice you had a lot more women writer directors on season two. Could you feel, you know, a little bit of a shift because of that here? Yeah, definitely. It was really great because obviously, you know, every male that has ever stepped on our set at any capacity, they've always been extremely respectful and um, looked at everything through the lens of total equality but there's an innate um, enhanced perspective in um, having a female director in terms of them being able to relate to you as a woman and someone like Starlight, although she's in a world that's like, it's very extreme and it's the superhero world and it's, it's really at least on a superficial level, nothing like our own. She is going through a lot of things that young women go through. Maybe they go through it to lesser degrees, but she's going, I think there are ways young women can relate to her as well as other characters on the show. And so when we have female directors come along, there are commonalities there that serve in, um, I think, enhancing the female storylines even more. And there's a mutual understanding that is inherent to an actress and, and female director uh, relationship that I think does manifest in the um, end product that is the episode for sure. It, it's been mighty effective. And I, I still like, all I want to do in particular is blab about episode six. We'll get there mm. in the spoiler section, but that was hands down my favorite episode of the whole season. But before we get to spoilers, uh-huh. I'm also really amused by just how you guys capture the junket process So does it add kind of a surreal element for you doing all of that, knowing that you're promoting a show that does kind of call out Hollywood on its bullshit? Yeah, it satirizes it. So it's funny because 
Um, I cash who plays Stormfront and I do that junket together. And our showrunner, Eric Kripke, after our first day of doing our press junket, where we must have spoken to like 40 outlets, he emailed us and he was like, isn't it so surreal to be doing a press junket while kind of talking about the satirizing of a press junket? And I said, yes, it's hilarious. But the good news is that everyone we've spoken to has been so cool and nice and asked interesting questions that um, it's made me more grateful to those in- those interviewers and reporters, including yourself. And luckily, um, it hasn't it hasn't been like that for us in reality. I think because Amazon and everyone is, you know, they vet the they vet the reporters, and I think that also now there's less tolerance for those kind of boring or misogynistic uh, questions. People are are becoming way more nuanced in terms of their interview questions and interviewing process, but it's still undeniably um, funny. And there are always the, the parallels there are what kind of makes our show our show. You know, we, it's a superhero show, but we ground it in a lot of reality and it's hyperbolic, but there's definitely some truth to it. Yeah, I was I was mighty amused by all of that. <laughs> so I'm going to put up a light spoiler alert right now because what's going to happen is you guys are going to get the first three episodes of The Boys on September 4th. And this part that I want to ask you about kind of comes with that group of episodes. So uh-huh. what was it like for you filming that scene where you get to take off everything that makes up Starlight's costume? Because I don't know, it just, like it was almost cathartic for me watching just like, peel away all of the things that, you know, some might not realize is what it takes to bring a certain type of human, like a look for a human being to screen that way. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I was so gung-ho about doing that specifically, and they didn't request this of me, but I requested it. I wear that outfit, and um, I really wanted to have that moment where I take off the outfit and the wig and all that stuff, but also you see me take out the... um, the butt and like breast implants that they give me for the outfit. And I said like, I have these little silicone inserts to kind of enhance my body and make it look more like a Barbie. That's not my own body. And so I was like, we need to show that this is not real because if we don't, we're contributing even though we're not, um, we're making ultimately kind of a negative commentary on her outfit because she is covert. She is playing the game this season. She's wearing it for a reason. She's not supporting it. She's just, like I said, playing the game. But I want people to see that this is not my body. I want people to see this is not real. That, sure, there are women out there with that bodies, but I just kind of wanted to be able to acknowledge the fact that more often than not, you know, that ideal isn't something to strive for because it doesn't exist in perfectionism, especially in bodies is a futile pursuit. And we see it too much in shows and we're not aware of how much makeup people wear or what's helping them achieve that ideal. And so I thought what a cool opportunity to take out these silicon inserts and this butt pad and show that this Barbie esque physique is totally artificial um, so, and then the, the, the whole point of the scene being that she's revealing, you know, that she is wearing a facade and you peek behind it for the first time. It's a short scene, but I think it's really, really important to show it. And I'm really glad we show it in the first episode straight off the bat. I think it's really informative of where she's at and it sets her up for the rest of her trajectory that season. 
Absolutely. Jumping to, I believe it's episode three now. Mm-hmm. There's one moment there where Homelander demands that Starlight kill Huey. Her mm-hmm. eyes light up. And mm-hmm. from our perspective, the thing that stops her is the distraction from Butcher. Had Butcher and them not been there lurking around the corner, what do you think she would have done? It's interesting because um, people have brought that up. And I have always thought without a doubt, including when we were filming it, that she would not have killed Huey. I feel like I know that character in my bones deeply too. And I think this season, sort of one of the big themes for her this season is that she's wearing a mask and she's trying to maintain that rock solid facade as much as she can. So I, in my mind, in that moment, as her eyes light up, she's, she's, you know, reaching into the depths of her brain to figure out what, what the hell she's going to do while pacifying Homelander to signify to him that she's carbonating with her powers. Um, But I do not think that she would have killed Huey. I, at all. I can't imagine it any other No, way. I chose, like, my choice was, yeah, exactly that. That she's showing her eyes light up. She's just kind of trying to figure it out quickly. But she, you know, there. it's like when she blasts him and she falls back because she has to. I mean, if you want to talk about a hypothetical world, her powers are really powerful. So it could be something like blasting a wall next to Huey and having good aim and creating a distraction and making it seem like there's been destruction and then figuring it out. But no, no, she would not have killed Huey. Starlight, maybe one day you can welcome me back into the seven. I know my route is long and hard. Are you serious? There is no fucking way you're coming back. There's no need for language. Before I let you go, we always wrap ladies' night with some kind of rapid-fire random questions. I'm just going to pick them up on the spot right now. Which ones am I going with? Let's do, if you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, over and over, what would it be and why? Oh, God. Okay. Oh, it would honestly, it would probably be peanut butter and jelly sandwich because it's so comforting to me and peanut butter is just my favorite food. And I've got a massive sweet tooth, so I don't want to eat dessert food for the rest of my life, but that's still kind of sweet. And I just think food is just, meals are just a vehicle to get to the dessert part. So probably that, like a really simple, old school, delicious peanut butter and like fresh jam sandwich. That that was all the right answer. So if you have such a big sweet tooth, this isn't my random question, but Mm -hmm. what, like, is is a birthday cake the biggest deal to you? Like, how do you decide- It is, but it is. But the problem for me is that I'm such a sweet tooth. I've spent a life of seeking out in every city I go to, wherever I am, like good desserts, like good ice cream, that it can't be an arbitrary birthday cake. My bar is now high because I eat a lot of dessert. So like, so I love a birthday cake, but it's got to be a good one. To me, the biggest deal is the like really good local artisanal ice cream. I can Honestly, I could probably have that for every meal, but it would be it would be something like that. I'm a, just my sweet tooth is rampant and it always has been and it always will be. I am right there with you. <laughs> you collect anything? Oh, that's interesting. No, you know what? I'm really boring. The only real collection I have is the books on my bookcase. I'm, I'm obsessed with reading and I'm never not. And um, and that's the only proper collection that I have. 
useful collection to have though. Definitely. So ending on a serious note, I find that I keep like, I like ending ladies night on this for whatever reason. What is the biggest fear that you had that you've managed to overcome? Mm, Honestly, it would be, and this is kind of a a general, like a little bit general, but it it would be confrontation. I definitely grew up with the disease to please. And that was only um, enhanced by the process of becoming an actress and wanting to be ingratiating towards people and, and say yes to everything so I could book jobs. And I also was always concerned about the stigma around actors, that there's a stereotype of us being divas. So I so badly wanted to fight against that. So I would compromise myself to avoid confrontation. And then slowly but surely, of course, you, you, you face the repercussions of that and people really take advantage of it. And I learned the hard way. And I remember the first time I did a real full-blown confrontation that involved, you know, confronting someone cutting them out of my life in a professional way. And it was, I mean, I was shaking in anticipation of it. I was so scared because it was not a muscle that was developed within me at all. But then I did and I've slowly become better and I'm not great at it, but it's become something really important because I think, um, especially as women, we really need to learn to find the balance between being kind and open, but also being able to really set boundaries. So that would be it, would be just confrontation. Yep. I can understand that. I'm always eager to please. So I, I take yeah. what you just said to heart. Erin, yeah. thank you so much for hanging out with us on Ladies Night today. And again, huge, huge, huge congratulations on the boys. It is, it's a blast yet again. Thank you so much. This has been really, really fun. To everybody out there who hasn't had the chance to catch the show, you've got the first three episodes dropping on Amazon Prime Video on September 4th, and then we're getting the next five each week after that. So you've got eight episodes of just like the best kind of craziness coming out. Yeah, you're going to be traumatized, but I promise that you'll like it. At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa automotive battery and save $25. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831.20. It's that little chico, Pit Boom, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.